Our sermon passage this morning continues on in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, True and Better. And this morning we'll be in chapter 4. Um, for the next couple of weeks we'll be in this same passage because I think what we have here is one of the most significant interactions that Jesus has with anybody in all four of the Gospels. It's his encounter with a woman, a Samaritan woman, at a well. Um, and so we're going to be here for the next couple of weeks. Um, with that said, turn with me in your Bibles or it's in your bulletin. John chapter 4 will be starting in verse 4 and going through most of the chapter. This is God's Word. Good, beautiful, and true. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, as John the Baptist. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So Jesus left Judea and went once more back to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living, living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his word, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior 
of the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. And an invitation. An invitation to come to you. To find our identity in you. To find all we need in you. So I pray in these moments, move by your spirit. Move upon our hearts. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. That we might cling to the identity we have and your love for us in Christ. I pray all this in his matchless name. Amen. So I think for most of us, we live in this world in this almost paradox between two impulses. On the one hand, we want to be truly seen and truly known. We want to be known and loved. Truly seen, truly known, and truly loved. And I think we were created for this. Scripture talks about, and the very first thing it tells us about human beings, that we were created in the image of of God. We were made to reflect Him. We were made to reflect His glory and His beauty and His goodness in this world, like the image in a mirror. Reflecting so that God and all creation can see the unique and diverse ways that we uh, look like Him, in a sense. We were made as creatures to be lovely and to be loved, to be truly seen, known, and loved. Now, on the other hand, that thing that we long for is the thing that we are terrified of. This is where we live. We long for and we fear the same thing. We fear being truly seen and truly known. Because I think we are convinced that if we are truly seen and truly known, we think there's no way that we could be truly loved. Through this violence and selfishness in our world, the ways we've been mistreated by others, the experiences of hurt that we've had, or even the ways that we've sinned against others, we've become broken mirrors that only reflect God and His goodness in broken and partial ways. And that longing to be seen and to be known that I think we all have, we begin to cover it up. We begin to cover ourselves up and hide because we're terrified that if we're truly seen and truly known in fullness, that there's no way that we'll be truly loved. There's no way um, that we'll be truly loved. We hide it underneath our experiences of shame. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is shame. Now, what is shame? Shame is that intense feeling that we are fundamentally unworthy of love, unworthy of connection, of belonging, that we are worthless. And it's not just embarrassment. You know, if you see somebody outside and they wave and you think they're waving at you and you wave, and there's somebody behind you, you feel embarrassed, right? Like, ugh, I can't believe I did that. But you don't come away going, well, I'm just worthless. I'm worth nothing. So shame is deeper than just a sense of embarrassment. It's, it's, it's deeper even than guilt. Guilt, when we have a feeling of guilt, it's because we've done something that in our mind doesn't match up to the values we hold. Guilt has to do with actions, or the feeling of guilt at least has to do with actions. Shame runs deeper. Shame runs deeper. We become convinced that we are fundamentally unworthy of connection and love, and that if we are truly seen and truly known, there is no way at all. That we will be truly loved. And so we live in this paradox. We long for and fear the exact same thing. We want to be truly seen and truly known. In this passage, we meet a woman who lives in a world steeped 
and shame like tea. Day in, day out. She lives in a world, an experience for her, that is just defined by shame. A woman, like many women throughout history, who has had shame heaped on her shoulders by people around her, who lives every day of her life dodging, avoiding, uh, making room for shame. But in our passage, we see Jesus break into this woman's shame. We begin to see her being set free. We begin to see her truly seen and truly known by God in the flesh. And he makes clear to her, that does not mean rejection. You being truly seen and truly known by me means you are truly loved. As she says in her encounter with Jesus, he quote, told me everything I ever did. And that's not a fearful thing for her when she says that. Because she finds a love and a worthiness in being loved that she's found nowhere else. She's seen, known, and loved, and freed from her shame. So what are the sources of her shame? We see it in this passage. It may be easy for us to miss some of these because we're, you know, 2,000 years and uh, 5,000 miles removed from where this encounter takes place. So what are the sources? There, I, there's at least three uh, I, I see. The first one it points out is that she's a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans are still a people group. You can still find people who are Samaritans uh, in Israel today. Um, and at the time of Jesus, people who were Samaritans, they were kind of like cousins to, to the Jews. They had similar ancestors. They had similar religion. It was different. So there was a break between them. They did, the Jews uh, tended to be far more in number. Um, and so the Samaritans were kind of like the forgotten little, rejected little cousin of the Jewish people. Similar religion, similar ethnic background, similar history, all of that. Um, but different. But different. And they did not interact at all, especially not positively. As verse 9 says, it's a verse that uh, it says, you know, Jews did not uh, interact with Samaritans. The literal translation of that from Greek is Jews do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. The idea here is that there's a fundamental break. They're not even eating with each other. And again, they had a shared history. They both traced their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Samaritans, they traced their line through Jacob's son, Joseph. If you read the, the end of the book of Genesis, he, Joseph is the main character in the last 15 chapters. Um, they traced their lineage to Joseph. And that was their kind of fundamental identity. That is uh, who they were. And like I said, they had slightly different scriptures, slightly different uh, worship practices. Um, from the outside, they probably looked similar to people who weren't familiar with, with them. But uh, it was kind of like, a, imagine how someone who's uh, Baptist interacts with someone who's Mormon. From the outside, it looks very similar. But there's some fundamental differences in theology and, and those kinds of things. So she's a Samaritan. And at this time, Samaritans lived in a specific region. And it was kind of like, I don't want to compare it to Dunn, but it was kind of like Dunn. You know, Dunn sits halfway basically between New York and Miami. And so we got people passing through here all the time, and they really only stop to get gas, maybe Starbucks now, um, or something to eat, right? And when they stop in Dunn, they don't look around and say, well, I want to live, you know, oh, this, is, this is just like Manhattan. No, they stop in Dunn and they're like, Ugh. they're going to spend a couple minutes here. They might laugh at us because we're, they think we're backwoods or something. But they're going to keep going, right? 
That's kind of what it was like in the Samaritan region. It says that Jesus was passing through from his way from uh, Judea to Galilee. Jesus had to pass through. He was, it was like a, a drive-by, uh, not drive-by, but like a flyover deal. He was just passing through. This was a normal route. So imagine your experience as a Samaritan. You're looked down on just because of who you are. And you have people constantly traveling through your town that when they stop to get water at a well, for instance, or run into town for something to eat, they scoff at it. They won't interact with it. They'll go to the store, they'll buy some snacks, and they'll head on their way, but they're going to be scowling at you the whole time because you're less than them. So that's her first sort of sense of shame. She's Samaritan. She's at the uh, bottom rung, in a sense, of the social ladder. And the second uh, source of shame is that she's a woman. Now maybe, let me make it very clear. There's nothing at all shameful about being a woman. Women are not less than men whatsoever in any way, period. But we know, even in our day, to be a woman is to face things that men never have to think about. To do equations in your mind that men never have to compute in facing this world. And that's today. Now, in this day, it was that times a thousand. It was that times a thousand. Women were disregarded in every way. It wasn't just in this time that she earned less money in whatever she did. She couldn't even enter certain uh, types of work. Um, They were barred from most industries. They were disallowed from education at certain times in the Roman world of this time. It was actually illegal to educate women. Or girls. You couldn't teach them to read. It was against the law in some places. And in most places, their testimonies weren't even allowed in court. So if you had a court case, you couldn't call a woman as a witness because they were seen by so many as fundamentally trustworthy. Obviously, this is completely wrong. But this is a source for her of shame. People look at her and they see a Samaritan woman. They see a woman and they consider less than, someone not to be trusted, someone not to be taken seriously. And that leads us to our third, uh, because in fact, a woman couldn't initiate a divorce, ever. Man could. In fact, there were times where a man could initiate a divorce because his wife burned his dinner. As little of a reason as that, but women couldn't initiate a divorce for any reason at the time. Uh, and I point that out because the third source of her shame is that she's been married five times. She's been married five times. And this is a small town we're talking about. This is not a big metropolis she's in. Everybody in this town knows her history, knows her business. And I think uh, the reality of this passage is that she had been divorced five times. In a world where she couldn't initiate it. That means that she had had five different marriages where she had been uh, pushed aside and left. Pushed out of the household and left alone. And so she's a Samaritan. She's a woman. And she's a woman who has been abused and used and not loved. And she sought that love five different times in five different marriages and has been rejected. These are the sources of her shame. And in fact, this is why she's at this well. It says that she's there at noon. 
Now, the time there, in their environment, noon, it was the hottest time of the day. It was not the day that everybody went to the well. You went early in the morning to get the water before the heat was beating down on you. Now, the reason she went to the well at noon is because nobody else would be there. She knew if she went at noon that she would not have to interact with anybody. Maybe she would be seen walking out to the well by the people in the town, but she didn't have to uh, feel their eyes. She didn't have to see them looking at her. So she would wait until nobody else would be there, and she would go at noon. And in fact, later on when she's interacting with Jesus, that's why I think her first response to when Jesus is talking about giving her living water, I think that's why her first response is, please give me this water that won't run out so I won't have to keep coming to this well. So I won't have to keep walking this walk of shame every day. So what happens in our passage? What happens in our passage? This woman, shamed by everyone, becomes the dialogue partner, this conversation partner of God in the flesh, of Jesus arrived in her town. This passage in John 4 is the longest individual conversation that Jesus has in all of Scripture. This is the longest one. She who had been shamed by everyone to the point where she wanted to avoid people becomes the conversation partner of God. And I think that we have this specific conversation recorded for us in Scripture so that we might overhear this conversation in a sense. That we might overhear and hear in this interaction an invitation for us in whatever our sources of shame might be to bring them to Jesus and to be freed of them. By Jesus. Because Jesus, in his interaction with her, he doesn't want to just uh, leave her in a life defined by shame. He doesn't want to give her coping skills to deal with it. He's come to set her free from the power of shame. He has come to free her from the false verdicts that she has lived under that have been passed on her by her own heart, by society, by those five failed marriages. He has come to invite her to live under a different sense of love that she might be truly seen, truly known, and not rejected. Truly seen, truly known, and truly loved. And so Jesus initiates this conversation with her in verse 7. He asks her for a drink of water. Even this step, he addresses her directly. He doesn't pretend like she's not there. He doesn't do what we all do when we see somebody and we don't have time to talk in Walmart. We duck down the freezer aisle or, you know, duck behind the, the stack of, uh, you know, they're doing inventory and you hide behind the chicken stock or whatever. No, he addresses her directly. He doesn't look at her side eye. He sees her. He speaks to her. And in verse 8, she tries to remind him of why he shouldn't be talking to her. In verse 8, he, she tries to remind him of her social shame. He says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's thinking, he must be talking to me by accident. But Jesus will not allow her to retreat back into her shame. He draws her out. He's not here by accident. He's, he has arrived as the gift of God. And when Jesus says this, he's not being egotistical. He has God become man. He has become the place where God's grace will explode into our graceless world. The place where heaven is coming down to earth to set us who are in bondage free. 
And so he tells her, this isn't just a conversation about a drink of water from a well. And she picks up on this, which is why she asks him if he's greater than her ancestor Jacob, who had apparently dug this well. She references there. And I think what we're seeing here is a Samaritan coping mechanism. A Samaritan coping mechanism for shame. In the face of a world where the Samaritans had been pushed aside and disregarded, they began to take great pride in their ancestry. They said, you're going to shame me for being Samaritan. Well, I'm connected to Jacob. We've got his well right there. That's where we get our water. We're connected to Joseph. That's our ancestor. They were descendants of great men, at least in their mind. And I think like all of us, in the face of shame, they wanted to cover up. In the face of shame, they want to clothe themselves to to hide from being exposed. And here she runs to what a lot of us run to, I think, a a sense of uh, pride in our heritage or in our last name. We're afraid of shame. And so we run. And in verse 13 and 14, Jesus says that he's here to offer her a source of identity and spiritual nourishment that will not run dry. It won't be an identity tied to her ancestor Jacob that can that can't fit the bill because that can't bear the weight of her identity. That can't take away shame. It can only cover it up temporarily. It's like a, a that running to her ancestry or whatever we run to to hide from shame. It's, all, it's like putting a band-aid on a big gaping wound. No, Jesus is here to offer her an identity in Him that can gut her shame of its power. That can gut her shame of his power. A sense of worthiness that can bear the weight of her identity. Again, he sees her, he knows her, and he lets her know that her being seen and known doesn't have to be a fearful thing. Because he can take the power of that shame away. And I think that's actually why he initiates the question of asking her husband to come. Because I think he knows that that's going to be the next place of retreat for her. To find the spot, she's going to find the spot in her experience that makes her feel most unworthy, most used, and most shamed, and in her heart to hide there. Right? Because he gutted the power of like finding her identity and her sense of uh, worthiness in her ancestry. And when we're uncovered and exposed, what do we want to do? Run to something else. She's running here. I think he knows in her mind. She's running. To the place of uh, greatest tenderness, the biggest wound that she feels, to hide there. I think Jesus knows, and that's why he initiates this, that she's going to remember this encounter with him for the rest of her life. And here's what's going to happen. She's going to remember the day she met the Messiah of God, the gift of God, who came to bring her life in this world of death and grace in a graceless world. And he knows that when he's gone, she's going to second guess this encounter. She's going to think it's too good to be true. She's going to think somewhere in the recesses of her mind that there's no way that he would have addressed me, that he would have offered me grace if he really, really knew me. So Jesus initiates this. Not to further shame her. He points out, you know, go get your husband. She says, I don't have one. That's right, you have five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. He's bringing it into the light. Not to shame her, but to make sure that she knows for the rest of her life that he knows her. In the fullness of her experience, in the fullness of her pain, he sees her and that he loves not an idea of her, 
a mistaken idea of who she might be in front of him. But he sees and knows her and loves her. Jesus knows exactly who he's talking to and exactly who he's looking at. And he wants her to know that. Ever heard of imposter syndrome? Have you guys heard that term before? Imposter syndrome is when people uh, who have achieved things, accomplishments, suddenly have this uh, feeling of, uh, uh, that they're frauds. That there's no way I should be, I should have been given this job. There's no way I should uh, be loved by this person. I'm a fraud. I got this by accident. Now, I think it's pretty common for Christians to have some form of imposter syndrome. We've received this incredible inheritance in Christ, this assurance of God's love for us that is set on us from eternity past and will see us through to the end. We've received this grace that never ends. And we think, I shouldn't, I shouldn't receive this is too good. This is too good. If people really knew who I was, they wouldn't talk to me. I gotta be here by accident. I gotta be, I, I must have snuck into the kingdom of God, and I must have got grace by accident. I think that imposter syndrome is a devious kind of shame. It's what shame does when we receive good things. It's what shame does when we receive good things. But know this. Friends, just like this woman here that day, you receiving the grace of God in Christ is no accident. There's nothing that has happened to you that has been done to you by somebody else. There's nothing that you have thought, said, or done yourself. Nothing whatsoever that is beyond the reach of God's grace. Beyond Jesus' intention to love you, nothing at all. He sees you. He knows you. He knows the deepest and darkest parts of your experience and your heart. You with all your faults, He knows you with all your mistakes. He knows the lies you've told, He knows the lies you've believed. He knows your prejudice, He knows your racism, He knows your misogyny, He knows your hatred. You, in all of your history and experience, you are seen and known. And because it's Jesus, being truly seen and truly known doesn't have to feel like we are exposed and in danger. We can feel this sense of freedom. Because Jesus is calling us to leave all that junk behind and the shame that all springs from it. He's breaking those bonds for us, even right now, right here in this room, inviting us to stop living under the verdicts that have been passed on us and to live in the reality of being a delighted in daughter or son of God. You are truly seen and truly known. And that does not mean you are not loved. You are truly seen and truly known. And in Christ, you are truly loved to the furthest extent. And what we see in this passage is the beginnings of the Samaritan woman experiencing this freedom. And she walks away from this encounter experiencing the first steps of that freedom. Look at verse 28 after her conversation with Jesus. The first steps of her freedom from the shame she's lived in. A notable detail in verse 28. What does it say? She leaves her water jar. It's almost a symbolic way of telling us that she doesn't need to carry that jar that is seeking after identities that can't bear her uh, identity or sources of, uh, of worthiness that can't bear her identity anymore. She doesn't need that jar. She doesn't need to drink from fountains that can never satisfy. 
In verse 29, what does she do in this new freedom? She goes to the people who have shamed her in this small town and tells them, Come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She has been seen and known by Jesus. And because it's Jesus, it's not a terrifying thing. In fact, her freedom has enabled her to go to the people that have shamed her to tell them that they can be free of their shame as well. And free of their shame not simply because Jesus accepts them. It's not just that this woman has an experience of feeling accepted by another person. I think we can all do that for each other. Right? Let each other know, I accept you and all your faults. No, the reason why it's significant is because of who Jesus is and what He does next. Where this goes. Because one of the things that happened at the cross is Jesus took on the depths of human shame and had the, uh, the power of shame poured on His shoulders, experienced it, died in the midst of the greatest shame, and when He rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, He broke forth victorious over the power of shame. Because Jesus didn't just die any death. He died the death of a crucifixion. Which is, uh, it was a uniquely cruel way of execution that was devised. It wasn't just physically cruel. Crucifixion victims were stripped of their clothes and exposed to the elements. They were stuck up on a stake for everyone to see. It was an extremely cruel way to die for people who had been deemed unworthy. And that Jesus, God sent by God, God in the flesh, would face not only death, but that kind of death. That Jesus would walk into that level of shame and debasement is no accident. What was going on? It was Jesus stepping into the absolute worst the world had to offer that He might endure it, that He might take it on His shoulders. And after He faced all of that shame and died with it on His shoulders, bursting forth from the tomb in victory in His resurrection, vindicated by God, and in, in the words of Scripture, lifted up and seated at the right hand of God, given the name that is above every name, the name that is above every piece of shame we could possibly have, He gives us freedom from our shame. He faced every bit of that so that we today might know that even the great power of your deepest shame does not have to be the end of your story. He can take the shame that you cannot bear from you, and He can free you from it. You don't have to be defined by the shame from what you've experienced, from what you've done, or what you haven't done. And friends, it might take us a long time to build the kind of muscle memory that comes from not, <laughs> not being fueled by shame, and not uh, wearing shame. But we can start today, right now, right now, to walk in that freedom because the power of shame has been broken by Jesus. It is our inheritance from Him to live in the reality of freedom. So hear that invitation. Friends, know that Jesus sees you and knows you fully and loves you fully. He does not turn away. He sees you, He knows you, and He loves you. And you are lovely because He loves you. And all the shame in the world... 
All the shame in the world cannot separate you from that love. Grasp that promise by faith. Receive that love today, whether this is the first time or the billionth time. (laughs) He has become for us a fountain of grace and worthiness that can never run dry.